one-on-one coaching with an individual or team, or it can be working with a group on strategy or technology or running a training session. Underlying all the ways we work with clients is a set of beliefs about relationships and learning that ultimately define our practice. While this book is threaded with thoughts about good or flawless consulting practice, I want to take a moment to be explicit about its foundational concepts. When I am lost, unsure how to proceed, which is most of the time, I return to a few ideas that ground me again and again and serve to reassure. Each of these ideas has as much to do with the heart as the head. In fact, finding and sustaining this connection may be the whole point. Consulting cannot be done well without genuine caring for the client, and the challenge is to find ways to embody our care in the way we do the work. Our care is expressed partly in our behavior and style, but it is also a matter of how we structure critical elements of the learning and change process. In a sense, our job is to be a learning architect. At our best, we design social settings that lead to insight, resolution of differences, and change. What follows are some ideas that support conditions under which learning and change are more likely to happen. None is fail-safe. Each contains elements of adventure, all flow against the stream of the conventional wisdom and the dominant culture. This is what makes them useful. While we usually claim that we are in the business of helping our clients learn, most traditional educational or consulting efforts are more about teaching than learning. If you ask who is really learning at any meeting, communication session, or training event, the answer is usually the person in charge. The dominant models for learning come from our educational system. If you look at most of our classrooms, the teacher stands in front, and students line up behind or around tables facing the front. The agenda, the objectives, the method of learning are all specified by the teacher. The teacher is in effect the supervisor of learning. Similarly, in consulting, the consultant is expected to be the change manager, even change agent. The task of the client is to absorb what the consultant has to offer. The classroom or consulting project run on this model is based on the need for predictability and control. Our need is to make the teacher or consultant central to the learning. It is partly a question of pedagogy and our desire to prescribe for others what we wish them to do. But we are not the only ones lured into an all-eyes-front approach. This classroom or meeting model is also demanded by the learners. If you decide to invite your client to define the agenda, create the learning process, and evaluate their own performance, you will probably face a revolt. Clients are so conditioned to be passive in the teaching-learning process that, given the choice to manage their own learning, they will pass and turn the floor back to the consultant. The result is that the teacher or consultant conspires with the participant or client to keep the teacher-consultant central and the student-client reactive. And one effect is that too often the consultant is the one who learns the most. Some of this is inevitable, for when we are forced to explain ourselves or teach others, we invest in the subject matter in a way that the client is not required to do. But some of it comes from our need to control what is presented and to specify what is learned and accepted. The symbol of this for me is the way we do much of our training. We have a passion for modeling tapes in training, for example. They promise a right way, 
They make the way explicit by headlining the learning points, and they pretend that what needs to be learned is predictable before the training event begins. The cost is that we rarely see people engage their full capacity to learn. Just as Tim Galway, author and creator of The Inner Game Method of Learning, has suggested, in most training and instruction there is a great deal of teaching and very little learning. In teacher-centered formats, the real learner is the trainer, and the participant is engaged in a sophisticated form of imitation and absorption. The real learning is in the act of creating the modeling tape, the headlined points, and the lesson plan. It is in the struggle to create that we find value. It is in the effort to understand and create ideas and practices that the learning resides. To bring value to the participant or the client, we need to design our efforts to support learning at the expense of teaching. This means we need to build elements of surprise, discovery, and not knowing into our interaction with the client. We need to allow risk in the room, raise the stakes, engage in caring confrontation, offer strong support, ensure affirmation of what each of us knows. These are what create learning. Packaging an answer, as we do with our tapes and programs, interferes with learning. Granted, packaged consultation or training is faster, more digestible, more visible and predictable, and therefore more saleable. It is a good short-term business strategy. But over time, it is like the alcoholic's hair of the dog cure for a hangover. If high-control, predetermined thinking is the client's problem, we cannot fix it with high-control, predetermined answers. If learning and change are truly our intent, a slower, more demanding, and more deliberative approach is required. We have to value struggle over prescription, questions over answers, tension over comfort, and capacities over needs and deficiencies. Most persistent problems that call for consultation have no clear right answer. This means we have to get used to facing the paradoxical nature of the workplace and the human beings we find there. Think about how you deal with situations where two opposing viewpoints are both true. Do we need more control or less? More centralization or more local control? Do people need more freedom or will they abuse the privilege and go off in separate directions? Should we always tell the truth or do we acknowledge the political nature of organizations? Will more technology and better information help or is it a problem of motivation and lack of training? Every consultation involves these kinds of questions. Even in very technical consulting, questions like these are embedded in the architecture of our solutions. We make a serious mistake if we choose one or the other, or even try to find a middle ground. We lose the benefit of the unique ideas at the two poles when we compromise for middle ground. The best outcomes emerge in the effort to understand the truth in both sides. The consultant's task is to evoke an exploration of the polarity, to postpone the quick answers, and to make sure that the complexity of the question is acknowledged before action is chosen. It is in the struggle to transcend both sides that a resolution is found. For example, we need control, and we also need local choice. People need more freedom, and they will at times abuse it. More technology is vital, and motivation and skill are everything. It is the tension in these polarities that informs action that is based in reality and stays alive. 
If we can accept that this sort of tension is always present, then the action we take at a particular moment will in some ways not matter. Whatever we choose, we will pay a price for it. So why not acknowledge this, see the struggle as the path, and resist the temptation of certainty and speed? What this means is that we have to learn to trust the questions, and to recognize that the way we ask the question drives the kind of answer we develop. We get stuck by asking the wrong question. The most common wrong question is that of the engineer who wants to know how we get something done. This question quickly takes us down the path of methodology and technique. It assumes the problem is one of what to do rather than why to do it, or whether it is worth doing. The how question has several variations. Take them as warning signs. How long will it take? We want to make good time regardless of where we are going. How do we get them to change? If only they would change, we would be better off. The top thinks the bottom is the problem, and the bottom thinks the top is the problem, and when they get together, they both agree the middle is the problem. What are the steps needed for? Life can be reduced to a step-by-step -step plan. A daytimer notebook is the icon, lists with milestones are the drug, and more discipline is the prescription that never cures. How do we measure the effect? There is no value in the invisible world. It is the measure of reality that becomes the point. Alan Watts once said that we have reached the point at which we go to a restaurant and eat the menu. We have become more interested in the definition and measurement of life than in living it. How do we communicate this? The problem is they do not understand us. A problem in communication is the ultimate empty diagnosis. It denies real conflict and raises spin to the level.